13 to 20. If you're using the seat Bibles, look on page 856. James chapter 5. By the way, if you have small children in the service, you're welcome to keep them in here, even if they make a little noise. You can also take them to the cafe if that's more comfortable for you. The service should be on there as well. When I was a teenager, I loved to watch the TV show MacGyver. Anyone, few of you remember MacGyver? You know, he's got the mullet, right? 1980s. Um, So he'd always get himself into tough situations, and then he'd jury-rig some kind of cool contraption out of whatever materials he could grab nearby to get himself out. He'd cobble together a vehicle, he'd cobble together a weapon, he'd cobble together whatever it took to save himself and others. In fact, I've even heard his name used as a verb recently, as in to MacGyver a solution to a problem. And what was MacGyver's go-to material most likely to be included in the contraptions he'd make? Duct tape, right? (laughs) Duct tape. Very often when MacGyver was in a tight spot or facing a difficulty, he'd reach for his trusty roll of duct tape. What do you reach for? When you're facing difficulty, when you're struggling, what do you reach for? Everyone reaches for something. A new installment of Star Wars just came out. And what do the Jedi reach for when they're in a tough spot? Their lightsaber, right? Remember Luke hanging upside down in the ice caves on the planet Hoth? His lightsaber had fallen in the snow just out of reach. And if he could just reach that lifesaver, he could get himself free. Or for those of you who are younger, who grew up with the prequels, what did Obi-Wan tell Anakin? Don't lose your lightsaber, it's your life. Or how about Indiana Jones? When he was in a tough spot, what did, what did he reach for? Often his bullwhip, right? Or how about the old John Wayne movies? In some of them anyway, the cowboy hero would reach for his revolver. What do you reach for? When, when things get tough, what do you turn to? Do you reach for the bottle? For the drug? Or for the chocolate or the ice cream? (laughs) Or do you reach for your smartphone? Maybe you're bored or you're just feeling a little down and and hoping for a little excitement or or maybe a text from a friend to to cheer you up and let you know that you matter. Or men, when when you just had a fight with your wife or your child and and you're not even sure what the fight was about... (laughs) And you're confused and you're insecure. You're, you're out of your depth with all the, the, the messiness of relationships and this feeling stuff. Do you turn to your work or to your hobby? Something simple, something predictable where you can feel in control and competent again. What do you reach for? Maybe you reach for your credit card to, to buy your way out of your problem. Or, or out of your depression? What do you reach for? Well, in today's passage, James suggests we reach for something else. That we develop a new reflex of where we turn first. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. What do you reach for when you are in trouble or when you're happy? 
James says, as followers of Jesus, let your first reflex be to reach for God. Are you in trouble? Well, pray to God. Are you happy? Then sing praises to God. Are you sick? Then call the elders of the church to pray to God for you. Reach for God. People reach for all sorts of things, but followers of Jesus, they reach for God. One commentator put it this way, our whole life should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. But why? Why turn to God? Other things work pretty well. The, the bottle dulls the pain. The, the iPhone eases the boredom. Some of us have plenty of money to, to buy us security, to buy us pleasure, to buy us comfort. Why turn to God? Well, James gives us two reasons. Because as followers of Jesus in God, he says, we have divine power and we have divine favor. First, James talks about divine power. He says, is any among you sick? And he means quite sick. He he pictures you flat on your back. And he says, call the elders of the church to come and to pray over you. And as they pray, to anoint you with olive oil and to do it all in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that James says, call the elders of the church. I would have expected him to say, to call those whom God has gifted with spiritual gifts of healing. But no, he says, call the elders. Why the elders? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, that having the spiritual gift to heal someone is a requirement for being an elder. Elders are supposed to be able to teach. They're supposed to be people of character, but able to heal? No. So what's going on here? Why does James say to call the elders to pray for your healing? Do you think if your elders came and prayed for you that you'd be healed? And, and what's this bit about their anointing you with olive oil? Well, that part's a bit easier, so let's tackle that question first. Anointing was, was common among the Jews that uh, James is writing to. People were anointed for basically two reasons. One was to set them apart spiritually, to consecrate them to God. In the Old Testament, a priest or a king was anointed to signify their entering into the service of God to set them apart as belonging to God. The symbolism of pouring oil on them was, was uh, possibly uh, of, of the Holy Spirit pouring down on the person from heaven. The second reason oil was used was for medical reasons. It was used to cleanse wounds, to tone muscles, to relieve headaches, etc. And so along with prayer, oil was a really tangible way of, of bringing someone into connection with God and spurring them toward health. So James says, anoint them with oil. Well, then James says in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. So does James mean that, uh, or does this mean that, that James is promising that any time the elders pray for someone, that they will be healed? Well, I don't think so. I, I think the key here is the prayer that is offered in faith. If the elders have faith as they pray, then the sick person will be made well, James seems to be saying. 
And this takes us back to the one of the things that James said in his letter way back in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, when you ask, when you're praying, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. It's the prayer offered in faith which will make the sick person well. James expects that the elders of the church will be people who have faith. Does that mean that a good elder has the faith to pray for any person who's sick and see them healed? I don't think so. Because in the Bible, God does not heal everyone who's sick, even when those known for their faith pray for them. The Apostle Paul himself says in 2 Timothy 4 that he left his co-worker Trophimus sick in Miletus. Another time in 1 Timothy 5, Paul's co-worker Timothy has a bad stomach and Paul tells him not to pray to be healed but to take a little wine to help with his stomach and with his frequent illness. So even Paul didn't always have the faith to heal those who were sick because faith isn't something you can just muster up. Faith is a gift from God and it springs from the word of God. So we read God's word and we realize, we're reminded that God is powerful, that God is abundantly merciful, that God is a God who heals, that God does want to heal people more often than we think. And yet, in any given person's case, we we can't know for sure, just using our brains, if God will heal them right now. We have to seek God in prayer for for God's will in that person's life, for a word or a, a sense from God which gives us some assurance, some faith, some confidence in this case that, that God for this person wants to heal them right now. And when we have this faith, when God grants us this faith, the prayer of faith, James assures us, will make the sick person well. So back to the question, why the elders? Why send for them to pray for you? Well, I think God wants to stretch the spiritual leaders of the church. (laughs) You know, in 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Faith and the power that comes from it are key dynamics of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And I suspect that God wants to stretch elders to grow, to lean into this faith and into this power as examples to the rest of the congregation, who James is going to get to in a minute. The famous devotional writer Oswald Chambers challenges uh, us all with, with these words. He says, Beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme him by the complete evidence in your daily life that he is powerless to do anything in and through you. Elders are the first ones who should be challenged by this. And and so here's how I'm challenged by this as an elder. You know, I get to pray for a lot of people who are sick. And over the years, sometimes God has healed them. Sometimes dramatically and even miraculously on occasion. And, and, And sometimes God hasn't healed them. But often, I'll confess, I've just shown up and I've prayed for people with little thought, little seeking about what God's will was and whether God wanted to heal them at that time or not. And so I'm challenged by this passage to take responsibility or the responsibility of praying more seriously. 
before I go to pray for someone who's sick, I, I need to pray ahead of time to, to seek God's face for some insight, some word regarding God's will for this person. Does God want to heal them now? Is he giving me faith to pray for their healing? And I suspect related to this, the elders also need to learn to do something that doctors regularly do. And that is that before doctors treat patients, they talk to the patients. They examine the patients. They run tests, right? Doctors try to diagnose what the problem is so they'll know what they're treating. And I suspect that elders need to learn some of these skills as well. James gives us a clue about this in the next verse, verse 15. He says, if the sick person has sinned, they will be forgiven. Now, is James saying that the sick person is sick because they've sinned? I think James is saying, maybe, maybe. James doesn't say because they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. But he does say, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. What James recognizes is that sometimes our sickness is caused by sin. And if elders are going to pray for someone to be healed, it would be good for them to gently explore and find out with that person if there's any underlying cause to that sickness which God wants to heal first. And, and, and you know, I think a lot of Christians have reacted against this possibility that, that there could be sin behind sickness because this has been abused. There are people out there who want to blame the victim. They, they want to say, oh, you're, you're sick. Are you suffering? Well, it's because there's sin in your life. God is punishing you now. But we know from the rest of Scripture that that's often not true. In fact, we know that it's damaging and it's abusive to talk to people that way. And so we wind up throwing out the idea that sin could be behind sickness. But the Bible's clear that sometimes sickness is due to sin. What does Paul say over in 1 Corinthians 11? He says some of the Corinthians were sick and even had died because they were sinning against others in the church. And what did Jesus say when the paralytic was lowered down on a mat at his feet? Son, your sins are forgiven, right? And uh, what did Jesus say to another paralytic he healed um, at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem in John 5? Afterwards, he warned the guy, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Sometimes, not always, maybe not even often, but sometimes there is sin behind the sickness. You know, doctors are are waking up to this fact in a way. They're increasingly becoming aware of the psychosomatic dynamics of health. That if we're lonely, or if we're stressed, or if we're burdened with guilt, that this actually affects our bodies, and it affects our immune system. And makes us more prone to health problems. All the more reason for elders like doctors to take some time with God and with the patient to understand as best they can what's going on. Does the sick person want to get well? Is there sin in their life underneath the sickness? Is there an emotional issue connected to their physical issue? Maybe unforgiveness, maybe bitterness that's eating at them and actually affecting their health. Does God need to do some emotional healing, some spiritual healing before the physical healing can take place? 
How does God want to heal this person? What does God want to do for this person? And can the elders therefore pray in faith with power, confident in what and how God wants to heal this person? Because, James says, God is the first person we should reflexively reach toward when we're in trouble and when we're sick. Why? Because God is powerful. And just to drive home how powerful God is, James adds that not only will the prayer offered in faith raise the sick person up, but verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And now James isn't just talking to elders, he's extending it to everyone. Verse 16, therefore he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We'll come back to the confess part, but notice James says, pray for each other. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Then James says, after all, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Do you remember the prophet Elijah? The guy who prayed for fire to come down from heaven and it came down and consumed an offering on Mount Carmel. And not just the offering, but the stone altar and the water that the altar and offering had been drenched in. Elijah, the guy who raised a widow's son from the dead. Elijah, who prayed for rain and it didn't rain for three plus years, as James reminds us. And then he prayed again and it poured buckets and buckets of rain. The prophet Elijah. James says Elijah wasn't a superhero. He wasn't some kind of a god. He was a human being just like you and me. Do you believe that? (laughs) It's hard to believe, right? We tend to put people like Elijah on pedestals. But James says, don't do that. He was a guy just like us. Do you remember when Elijah got so depressed, he prayed that God would kill him? (laughs) And how he felt so sorry for himself and he complained to God that no one else besides him was on God's side? Elijah was human. He wasn't perfect. It's just that Elijah knew what James wants us to know, that God is powerful. And Elijah had learned to patiently listen for God's voice, for God's word. And because Elijah knew God's power and because he listened to God, his prayers were powerful and effective. James wants this for us too, for each of us. Because when we realize how powerful God is, when we realize that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, then God is the one that we'll reach for first. Reach for God, James says. First, because of how powerful God is. And then second, reach for God also because of God's favor. God is willing and eager to show favor to us when we turn to him. If the sick person has sinned, James says, they will be forgiven, verse 15. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed, verse 16. In other words, reach for God because God offers great favor. God is willing to forgive. Do you think you can't go to God for forgiveness because you're nobody special and why would God notice you? God sees and knows everyone. God knows who you are. God knows you intimately. And God is offering you favor and forgiveness. God wants to forgive you. Do you think God is, or do you think your sin 
is too big for God to forgive you. God is even bigger, far bigger than your sin. Do you think that you've sinned so many times that you don't deserve to be forgiven? Guess what? It's not about you. It's not about what you deserve. It's about who God is. And God is forgiving. Nobody ever deserves forgiveness. God doesn't forgive people because they're forgivable. God forgives people because God's character is to be forgiving. God's heart is gracious. God is willing to give you what you don't deserve and what you haven't earned. It's called grace. We can turn to God because God offers us favor. Like the story, or the father in the story of the prodigal son. God always stands with his arms wide open, willing to welcome us home. The only thing that keeps us from God is our unwillingness to come back and seek his forgiveness. Because if we do, then, then when we look at God's face, God is smiling at us, welcoming us to be reconciled to him. That's what God is like. God wants to forgive us, to restore us, to embrace us. God is offering us favor. That's why we can reach for him. But what does James mean by confess your sins to one another? Does he mean we should have a time in the service where people can stand up and admit their secret sins, which they committed this past week? It would be fun to do after the tongue, tongue assignment this past week. Does, does he mean we should gather in small groups and go over with each other all the ways we messed up? I don't think so, because, because here's the principle that we find in Scripture about confessing our sins. Is it a private sin? Then confess it privately. Is it a public sin? Then confess it publicly. So let's say you've sinned against another person. It wasn't in public. Most people don't know, but, but the person was hurt by it. Well, then go to that person privately. Confess your sin to them and ask them for the forgiveness and, and ask God for forgiveness. And it's nobody else's business unless they were there to see it happen. And, and if they were, then you might want to confess it to them too, just to say, hey, you know, I said that to so-and-so and I realized it was wrong and, and I went to them and, and I patched things up. I just wanted you to know. I'm sorry for what I did. But, but what if it was just a mean thought you had about someone in their head and, and later you're convicted that, oh man, that was, that, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have thought that. But, but the other person doesn't even know that you thought that thing. Should, should you confess it to them then? Well, well, probably not, because for them, ignorance is bliss, <laughs> right? If you come to me and you admit, by the way, I was thinking awful things about you, um, that's just going to hurt me unnecessarily. I don't want to know that. <laughs> In that case, you know, you confess it to God, ask God for forgiveness, and, and leave it at that. <laughs> um, but now let's say, on the other hand, you sin publicly. You, you stood up in a meeting and you chewed someone out. And um, everybody heard it. Well, well, then, yes, please confess it to everyone. Um, ask for our forgiveness and for God's forgiveness. So that's the general rule. Public sin, confess it publicly. Private sin, confess it privately. One caveat, though, and that is that it's easy to confess to God because God's invisible, right? <laughs> 
I've confessed stuff to God in the dark, not looking God in the face, metaphorically speaking. And, and afterwards, truth be told, that confession didn't even seem real. And, and for that reason, it can be good for our souls to confess to a real person if we have a friend that we can really trust or a small group that we can really trust. Because when, when we tell a real person what we did and, and we name what we did by its real ugly name and we say it out loud to a real person, that has a greater force on us. And it makes the confession more real in our experience, which humbles us and, and also gives us a greater appreciation for the fact that we did that thing and yet God really does forgive us and really does extend us favor. And that's why we can reach for God. Well, James ends by addressing the question, but what if someone has done something really wrong and they won't confess it? What if, what if they won't acknowledge it? They won't be reconciled with God or other people about it? Verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Sometimes, James says, we may have to go after someone and try to bring them back. And not just the elders, but any of us may need to do this. Why? Not because we want to rub their noses in what they've done, but because we know God wants to forgive. God wants to restore. God offers them favor and we get to be the reminders of that good news to them and in doing so we might even save someone from death it's not about being the spiritual police it's about helping someone just like us get back in touch with god's favor who's lost sight of it god can once again be the one that they reach for reach for god james says help one another reach for god God has more power than, than anything else you might be tempted to reach for instead. God offers you greater favor than anyone else you could turn to instead. So reach for God. Help one another do it. Reach for God's power. Reach for God's favor. Well, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I thought we'd end with one of those famous Super Bowl commercials. And then I'll say a few last words. This one is all the way back from Super Bowl 37. It's short, so you don't need to worry about dimming the lights. And I think it may come through on the TV, so you'll have to listen up for the volume. Let's make sure the TV volume's cranked up. Thank you.